you want to give love to the city, that's a fact. But you're going to need help if you want to make an impact. Well endowed, you want to be well endowed with the Edmonton community. Things really happen when you find that you're well endowed. Hi, everyone. Welcome to ECF's Well Endowed Podcast. I'm Graham Loomer. And I'm Anna Alfonso. Edmonton is full of generous donors who have created endowment funds at Edmonton Community Foundation. These funds are carefully stewarded to generate money that supports charities in Edmonton and beyond. On this podcast, we share stories about how these funds help strengthen our community, because it's good to be well-endowed. Now, before we dive in, we've got some fun news to share. The Well-Endowed Podcast has been nominated for... Drumroll, Graham! A Canadian Podcasting Award in the Outstanding Branded Podcast category. Woohoo! If you'd like to support the show, you can vote for us at canpodawards.ca. And you'll discover other incredible shows there too. We'll have the link in our show notes. Okay, let's get to it. On this episode, we look at how new innovations in local agriculture can impact the future of food security in Edmonton. Food security is the topic for our 2023 Vital Signs Report. We're excited to announce that we'll be launching the full report on November 9th at 10 a.m. We'll share details on how to register at the end of the show and in the show notes. ECF and Edmonton Social Planning Council have partnered to create this report, and we've learned a lot about food in our city. In our previous Vital Signs episodes, we've talked about food security over the past 10 years and where we are today. We also looked at how food is more than just basic survival. It brings communities together so we can thrive. We've also learned that access to food is getting harder for many families. So what can we do to make food more accessible in Edmonton? Today, we are looking at innovations in how we grow food. Freelance producer Emily Rendell-Watson introduces us to new approaches in local agriculture and explores how we could make change for the future. Alberta has the highest rates of food insecurity in the country. That's according to a 2021 report by Proof, a University of Toronto research program. Many families are relying on food banks to get by, as the cost of groceries continues to go up. Now, Vital Signs is a checkup that measures how our community is faring. And this year, the Edmonton Community Foundation has been exploring food security in our city. 2023 marks the 10th anniversary of Vital Signs, so the Edmonton Community Foundation is revisiting its very first topic to explore how far we've come on this issue of food security, where we are today, and where we're headed. In this episode, we're looking at the future of food security and how social innovation can support that. We'll hear about a local not-for-profit that's helping people connect with each other and the land. We need to start talking about saving green space now in urban areas for local food production and how a hydroponic farm can extend the growing season by producing fresh produce. It's crunchier. There's just more flavor with it. But first, Mary Becky is a professor and director of community engagement studies in the School of Public Health at the University of Alberta. She has a PhD in sustainable agriculture and rural development. Her research has focused on localized food systems, including the role of the social economy in local food systems and ways to support new farmers entering into agriculture. I started off by asking Mary about agroecology and alternative farming practices, as well as what conventional agriculture looks like here. So in the prairie region where we're situated, agriculture has become highly industrialized. Uh, It's a very high-tech sector, 
large scale and it's export oriented. It's very dependent on fossil fuel manufactured inputs. So, you know, agrochemicals, machinery, you know, even the GPS now for data analysis of all sorts of things for use of fertilizers, pesticides, etc. So that's kind of become the norm here. And it, as a result, farm sizes have been getting bigger and bigger because of the cost of farming to, to make it viable. Bigger is better, as they say. That's kind of the motto. And as a result, we're, we have a declining uh, farming population. So that's kind of the picture of what farming looks like here. The alternatives that are arising are particularly, you know, if you're speaking about agroecology or regenerative agriculture or permaculture, these are all different approaches to food production that are more based on ecological farming methods. And again, what does that mean? Well, it means farming more in harmony with the assets, the resources that are there, that are available. So less dependency on those external manufactured inputs and more reliance on things like crop rotations or intercropping, uh, the use of animal manures, you know, animals period, I guess, in uh, farming practices. So going back more to mixed practices relying more on traditional, some of the traditional farming practices as well, that agroecology means it is so context specific that it means different things in different places. What it might mean to the potato farmers in the, in the mountainous regions of Peru is quite different from what it would mean here in the prairie region. And scale is typically a central aspect of these alternative approaches. Whereas, you know, as I said, the conventional agriculture is very large scale. These alternatives tend to be more smaller scale, much more biodiverse. So diverse in terms of the uh, types of crops and the number of crops that are planted. But as I said, also a mix of animals and, and plants in the farming practice. And it really is about looking at a farm or a landscape as an eco zone or an ecosystem. The common denominator amongst all of these alternatives is a more ecological approach to farming. When we think about how agroecology and some of these methods can play a role in tackling food insecurity, what does that actually look like? How do they do that? Well, I think it's in a number of different ways they contribute to that. So instead of importing carrots and potatoes from California or Washington State or apples, you know, if we can produce more of the products that we're eating here locally, it's definitely to our benefit economically, but also just in terms of our capacity so that if there is a shock to the system, like there was during the COVID pandemic, um, we're not faced with supply chain disruptions as we as we were. I mean, the system responded actually very quickly. People were very surprised. You know, those empty store shelves were were filled quite quickly, and that's just because it is a globalized system. 
creating a more healthy eco, you know, landscape, and also producing more locally and a, more, a greater diversity locally is going to benefit us in many different ways. And also, because of the smaller scale of these operations, we're going to get more farmers on the land, a more diverse set of farmers than we have right now. And we're seeing more and more young people returning to agriculture because of these alternatives that that are now on offer. We're seeing more ethnic diversity of, of people attracted to uh, these types of alternative or small-scale farming practices, more women. But there's still you know, a lot of barriers and challenges for these types of operations to really flourish. Part of it is market access, but also, you know, we have farmers markets, we have a community supported agriculture, we have different alternative marketing venues as well. But a lot of people still prefer to go to a grocery store where they can do a one-stop shop. And farmers markets, uh, community supported agriculture, prices can be higher than in a conventional retail store. So there's a lot of benefits, but there's also a lot of challenges. And I think that government can play a, a really critical role in supporting these alternatives. And we haven't seen that to the extent that we certainly could be seeing that in Alberta or in the Prairie region in general. And also educational institutions have a key role to play. Most of our programming in agriculture colleges is geared towards industrial ag, conventional agriculture. So there's not a lot on offer within those uh, universities, college settings for alternatives. Stepping up into that zone now are things like the Young Agrarians, which is a very interesting network, farmer to farmer network, support network, which provides educational opportunities, internships, everything from how to grow plants to how to care for animals to how to develop a budget, how to plan for a, a year's farming. They're stepping in because the institutions have really not been addressing this new segment, those people that are interested in alternative agriculture. I think the more diverse that we can make our farming practices, the ecological, that we're responding more closely to ecological factors rather than trying to dominate and control, I think is going to work in, in our favor a lot better. Now, when we think about rethinking our current economic and agricultural practices, why is that so important to benefit food security in an equitable way across cultures? Well, I think it's, it is this combination of social and ecological innovation that's, that's going to help us address food insecurity, but just, you know, the, the damage that's been done to the environment um, through the methods we have been using. We talk a lot about innovation and resilience when we're, when we're talking about climate change or just about the rapidity of changes that are happening around us. So I think we do definitely need this combination of social and ecological innovation. And there's, there's so many great examples of innovations that are happening now that we need to scale up or, 
or scale out, as they say, you know, to repeat these innovations more widely and to uh, experiment because experimentation is absolutely key to resilience. And so not being in a rigid kind of lockdown system where you have more flexibility and opportunity to maneuver when change comes at you. You mentioned social innovation will support food security going forward. What innovations do you think will have the most impact? And are there some examples that you could give, whether it comes to accessing food or or helping others access food? Um, I think, uh, you know, I mentioned the role of the social economy. The social economy is all about addressing community needs that aren't being addressed through the conventional economic system. It's bringing local values and context back into the economy. Farmers markets are an example of that, but so are cooperatives, nonprofit entities that bring value, address local needs, just like Lady Flower Gardens is a prime example of that. And when I was working in Europe, we looked at different farm collectives or cooperatives that also combined diverse production systems in uh, together. So that's where you get farmers that are working in different eco zones coming together to market their products. So they're taking advantage of the diversity of the ecological base that they're working on. So it, in other words, if you get a, a crop failure in one region, you know, if your potato crop is a wipeout because of some pest, or if you get flooding in another area, which takes out another type of crop, then if you've got diverse farmers coming together and working together from diverse zones where you can, you know, skirt around some of those ecological crises, you're in a much stronger position to respond to a crisis, to any kind of, you know, whether it's a climate crisis or even an economic crisis. You're bringing that more of that heterogeneity and diversity into the system. That was Mary Becky, Professor and Director of Community Engagement Studies in the School of Public Health at the University of Alberta. I'd like to introduce you to a few people who are demonstrating how social innovation can help fight food insecurity. Kelly Mills is the Founder and Managing Director of Lady Flower Gardens. They are a not-for-profit organization in Northeast Edmonton that's building an inclusive community around sustainable agriculture. And it's not just about growing food for those who work in the garden. It's about building a sense of purpose and connection. Here's Kelly to tell us how Lady Flower Gardens got its start. Well, I had been volunteering at the Bissell and Boyle, and I was doing arts and crafts in the drop-in. And week after week, sometimes the same people would drop in. And eventually we started to develop kind of an arts and crafts community. So uh, there was the arts and crafts were the substrate or the task that would bind us together. So as we were making the tasks and sharing ideas about what kind of arts and crafts to do, we would start talking about our lives and got to know each other's names and looked forward to seeing each other week to week. And I've always been interested in social things and economic things and why there's poverty and why some people have access to the resources they need for their health and wellness and why others don't. And so I went on a 
organic agricultural tour of Cuba out of interest sake to see how they were tackling their food sovereignty problems and uh, other aspects of their life. And I met a retired market gardener on that trip and I pitched the idea to him to have a communal garden so that we could build a community on growing food together instead of art. And he liked the idea and he decided to facilitate it 12 years ago and we're still doing it. So Lady Flower Gardens, can you tell us a bit more about the model and how it actually works? Yeah, it's kind of a federation of social agencies. So there's the two acre plot of land and the farmer, Doug Visser and myself, we plant the garden with the help of the different community members from the different agencies that are part of the federation. So for instance, last year we had Niganan Housing, the Mustard Seed, Boyle Street Community Center, and Hope Mission, and Recovery Acres. So on any given year over the last 12 years, some of the agencies have come and gone and come back again, depending on the resources they have that year to put towards participating in the project. A major stumbling block for them is transportation, because even though we are in the city limits, there's no bus service up in the Northeast Edmonton yet. We're surrounded by agricultural land that hasn't been developed yet. So their agencies have to figure out how to get a van or how to get their community members up and to staff their group when they come up. So when they come up, they meet in a circle and we have an icebreaker. And usually the staff is involved in, in developing those those discussions at the beginning in the circle, just to get people to know each other and start to feel like they're part of a community. And then our staff or myself will let them know what the needs of the garden are that day. And generally, we everybody does about 10 to 15 minutes of weeding so that we don't have to use any herbicides. And then they harvest, uh, they harvest for the food bank, and then they harvest for themselves. It sounds pretty simple, but... It's not only a food security project. First and foremost, it's about mental health and learning how to have fellowship and care for the land and be outdoors and be needed. A lot of them really like to hear again and again how much produce we are donating together as a group to the food bank. How do you keep it running? Like what subsidizes this model of Lady Flower Garden so that you can keep doing it year after year? Well, it's, that's an excellent question. It's very difficult to keep it going. We are a not-for-profit, but we are a part nine corporation, and we don't have our charitable status because we don't have a democratically elected board. So the bulk of the subsidizing comes from the farmer who believes in the project and who would like to, us to become more sustainable. One of the things about this model that helps us is that even though we're institutionally weak, um, our agencies have it, strength, and so we tap into them. So they come with their staff, so we don't have to pay any of those salaries. And their staff have relationships with their gardeners, and they also have skills and training to uh, help support them, which, you know, we don't have. I, like, I'm a dental hygienist. Doug is a farmer. And our the gardeners have severe obstacles. We wanted to collaborate with the agencies that provide the supports for some of the most vulnerable citizens in Edmonton. That's what the whole mandate of the garden was for, was for people that have formerly been on the margins of society. And at Lady Flower Gardens, they're our center, but we need to have 
people that know how to support them, including dealing in a trauma-informed way with their needs and some of the behavioral stuff that can happen, which we aren't trained for. We also get the Canada Summer Jobs Grant. Last year, for the first time, we asked um, our agencies for $1,000 for their time slots so that we could pay a decent wage for our summer staff so we would get the same summer staff year after year that would come back. And that makes a big difference for the agencies and the gardeners to see the same face and the person that they had the relationship with. Uh, we also have a festival in the fall that raises about seven to $10,000. And we have a new relationship with Doug's son and daughter-in-law who have started a for-profit flower business and they give us now 20% of their net. So we're getting stronger. We're getting to be in a position where we can support our agencies better. This kind of social innovation plays a really key part in supporting food security in the future. I'm wondering, what have you learned over the past 12 years of Lady Flower Gardens that speaks to that and how it's going to continue doing that going forward as you carry those lessons forward? It just seems to me that um, there's only so much food to go around from the capitalist system, the market economy, you know, the relationships the food bank has developed with the grocers and the other food distributors is, I think, a very intelligent and good design. And I don't want to undercut that or go around the food bank to get to those sources of food. So I, it seems to me the only other way to produce more food is to produce more food. I, I believe that Edmonton is a, a great place to produce more food. And so Lady Flower Gardens is not individual plots in a community garden. And I'm very supportive of community gardens. I've been a member of community gardens, but that's an individual plot that lives or dies on my back or whoever has the plots back. And then you get to decide what happens with that produce and you get to decide what's grown. But a communal garden is different. It's more productive than individual plots and more inclusive of people that can't have the time, energy, or resources to have a little plot on their own. So I feel that communal gardening where, you know, there's up to like a thousand different people involved in it on a two acre farm, if it was organized properly and if there was a, a paid staff that was managing it, could produce a whole bunch of food that could then be preserved and stored for the winter. And I know that seems to a lot of people backwards because that's what all our ancestors did 50 to 100 years ago, but it worked for them and it was delicious, nutritious food. I really think that communal gardening in an urban setting is an untapped method of really tackling this food security issue in a way that could be very empowering and healthy for people in a social way and physical way too, because it takes work. And then there's all types of supports that can be given to people that supposedly, you know, don't have the physical ability to do gardening like that, that could still be included in the different types of tasks that are needed to run a garden, including a person that maybe just sings and visits and shares recipes on how to preserve the food or share if they're elderly, they can sit at a washing station and wash carrots and explain how they gardened with their grandmother 60 years ago, share knowledge, share goodwill. 
so then that brings me to the idea of how do you put aside a whole acre in a city where people can access it without having to get in a van to come up to Lady Flower Gardens. And we are in the city limits. All the, all the terrain around us is zoned for uh, development. So one day we're going to be this agricultural oasis in the middle of a suburban desert. And it would be nice to get into discussion now with potential stakeholders on how an agricultural neighborhood could be intentionally developed that would tackle a whole bunch of issues at once, including higher density, affordable housing, and leave more green space that's right outside of that housing so people could just walk out in the morning and go to a communal garden just like they go to their basketball team or their or the drop-in at the Bissell or like a place that a person volunteers to go to be part of to help grow food together for the greater good of their community. That was Kelly Mills, founder and managing director of Lady Flower Gardens. Kelly and her team have developed a relationship with the Community Service Learning Department at the University of Alberta. The students there have researched what an intentional agriculture neighborhood could actually look like and what kind of supports would be needed by the people a neighborhood like that could serve. If you're interested to learn more, check out the webpage devoted to this concept, www.ladyflowergardens.com the-acres. Next, I'm going to tell you about another local innovation that's growing food. YTC Gardens is a hydroponics farm that grows greens for the member First Nations of Yellowhead Tribal Council. If you're not familiar with hydroponics, it allows you to grow plants and food in nutrient water in a controlled environment. In the case of YTC Gardens, they use a sea can. And there are many benefits, including the need for less land and water to grow food. Here's Glenn Susan, a grower who runs the garden, on why the idea to create YTC Gardens was born during the pandemic. We were noticing that a lot of the members on the YTC councils for communities were having issues with food. Not a lot of people were able to grow them themselves. <laughs> and a lot, a lot of people were working. There's a lot of people below the poverty level. So I always had a passion to grow food using technology. So hydroponics is kind of was just felt naturally for to me. Growing lettuce, uh, mint, I grow kale. I can grow those all year round and I can produce probably between four to 600 heads of lettuce every week. So it feeds a lot of mouths. Wow, that's impressive. So what is the goal of YTC Gardens? Is it to, to get food into people's hands at a, a more affordable cost? Yes. The goal is because, like, like I said, uh, First Nations, not a lot of food growing on. And the fact that we don't want to adopt the whole mono farming culture, you know what I mean? Like having big fields open. So having hydroponics kind of reduces our carbon footprint, so to speak in a sense that I can do all this in a confined unit, would need about 40 acres of land to grow about the same amount of lettuce that I can produce, which is kind of crazy. The goal is for me to try to get to a point where I'm growing traditional medicines so our elders don't really have to go out there and pick anymore. It'd be readily available for them. There is knowledge that the elders have. Because First Nations is a very um, oral, passed on tradition cultures, a lot of the elders don't want to necessarily write down things. so. Giving them access to the medicines all the time, rather than going out into the bushes to find it, would, would be a lot more beneficial because they would have more time to sit there and teach the next generation about the importance of these medicinal plants. 
that's where I want to get to. Why is that important to you? It's, it's important to me because one of my grandmothers was a medicine woman for my community. I didn't get a chance to get that information from her before she passed. Mm, that that's an important driver for you. Our culture, like our culture, is everything. The thing, and we don't have a lot of people that are willing to step up and try to like learn these things from the elders before they go. And then I want to learn them, but at the same time, though, I don't want to disrespect that. So I want to try to find a way that I can harmoniously use the knowledge that I have through hydroponics to grow the medicines that they would need. Why is it important to produce food for the indigenous communities who are part of Yellowhead Tribal Council without using traditional farming methods? How does this help and why is it important in terms of creating a more sustainable way of producing food? Well, so a lot of indigenous communities are further out, right? They don't have access to uh, a, a grocery store. Like they would have to drive hours away. Whereas with the Seacan, Imagine if, if, each, if each community had a, the, one of these sea cans growing food on the nations, then you wouldn't have to travel that far. You would have access to fresh uh, vegetables on a daily basis all year round grown in your community that's pesticide free. With the hydroponics unit being so self-efficient, it's water efficient, uh, it's temperature controlled, the plants grow faster because of the fact that it is an uncontrolled environment. So you can control the lights and the water and the temperature the plants will always grow and thrive. Whereas if I were to grow them outside, the variables can change from a cloudy day to it being too hot to it being dry, whereas plants can grow. Now that you're a year in, where do you see YTC Gardens going next? Like what's the goal in terms of continuing to grow this moving forward? Uh, the goal is to expand. I want to expand by getting more sea can units and expanding the variety of crops that we can grow. My community, Alexis First Nation, also has a hydroponics unit. Um, it's in the process of being commissioned right now. So they're pretty much almost done it. Once they're done, they're gonna have me come out there and help train two of the members to grow in this unit. Once that operational, the goal is to turn it into an educational experience, meaning that we're, we're hoping to have kids from our school go into the unit, learn about it, learn to seed, get the kids to harvest the vegetables themselves, and then give that back to the community or sell it to the, our local store to give it to our members. That was Glenn Susan, grower with YTC Gardens. You can find the 2013 Vital Signs Report as well as the recently released Vital Topics on Food Security at ecfoundation.org slash initiatives slash vital dash signs. I'd like to give the final word to Mary Becky, who we heard from earlier in this episode. She's going to leave us with some final thoughts on what we need to do to move the needle on food security in Edmonton. I think increasing capacity for local production is key. So a lot of urban agriculture has taken off to some degree here, but there are some limitations, some policy barriers around that and enabling different ethnic communities that do want to access land to grow food that they're more commonly used to eating and isn't necessarily readily available here. Pushing the envelope on how long our growing season is here by having more 
greenhouse capacity, hydroponics, you know, there's there's many different ways to extend our growing season indoor and outdoors. And then, of course, increasing people's income so that, you know, whether you're on social service support or a guaranteed livable income, you know, we know that it, it does take money to exist in this world. So, if people do have more access to finances that they can then purchase the food they need or even purchase the seeds that they need to be able to grow their own food or purchase the the hens that they might want to have in their backyard so that they can produce eggs. So having adequate amount of money for living is absolutely critical. The research shows that this is an absolutely critical piece of alleviating food insecurity is is to elevate people out of poverty. Thank you to Emily Rendell Watson for bringing us this story and to our guests, Mary Becky, a professor and director of community engagement studies in the School of Public Health at the University of Alberta. Thank you to Kelly Mills, the founder and managing director of Lady Flower Gardens. And thanks to Gun Susan, a hydroponics technician at YTC Gardens. Listeners, we are very excited for the launch of the full Vital Signs Report. The launch will be held on November 9th at 10 a.m. at Edmonton City Hall. You can register to attend in person or watch from the comfort of your couch. We'll have the links in our show notes. There are many people who helped make this report happen, including our advisory committee that was made up of community members working to make food more accessible. They shared their experience and knowledge to help guide the research for this report. And a special shout out to the Edmonton Social Planning Council, who partner with us each year to make vital signs happen, leading the research and compiling the findings that we can present. The full report will be available soon. You can find it at ecfoundation.org forward slash vital signs. We'll have that link in our show notes, and you'll be able to find more information about the projects you heard about today. While you're clicking, be sure to take a look at ECF's grants and student awards to see what's coming up. And you can visit our blog for even more great community stories. That brings us to the end of the show. Thanks for sharing your time with us. Yes, thank you. And if you enjoyed it, please share it with everyone you know, or at least two people who you think would find this really interesting. If you've got time, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We always love to hear from you. We really do. You can always say hi to us on Facebook where you can see some pictures and share your thoughts. Thanks again for tuning in. We've been your hosts, Graham Loomer and Anna Alfonso. Until next time. The Well Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation. And is an affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. This episode was edited by Lisa Pruden. You can visit our website at thewellendowedpodcast.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. And follow us on Twitter at BECF. Our theme music is by Octavo Productions. And as always, don't forget to visit Edmonton Community Foundation at ecfoundation.org. Well endowed.